you want to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. And I'm sure at some point in your life, maybe even tonight, you have seen the, the show that's on TV called Extreme Home Makeover Home Edition. And the, the show always has the same story, okay? So I'm going to tell it to you. It's the same story over and over again. It's just the situation changes just a little bit. But the story is that they find a family unit that is under great distress and facing a lot of hardship. And they are living in a very dilapidated home or a house that's just falling apart or just a living situation that just it just seems unbearable. You know, you might have like 10 people and they're all crammed into about a 250 square foot spot and, and you know, rotters coming everywhere and things are rotted out and it's just, it's just bad. And so what happens is this team moves in to uh, the neighborhood and they've, they've kind of got this arranged and this is amazing, but in one week's time, they find that they are able to construct with the manpower and the materials and the money of a community all coming together in one week's time, they are able to destroy this little house and build a completely new one. And so what happens is the team shows up and they say, good morning, you know, and these people come flying out and they load them up in this limo and they send them away on a week's vacation to like Disney World or New York or Waco, Texas or someplace like that, you know, where you could have a really good time. And they load them up, they send them away, and then this just army of people, several hundreds of people come and they, they have their tractors, maybe there's a football team or whatever, and they come and they destroy this little house, what's left of it, and in a week's time they build a completely new home that is just absolutely spectacular, filled with everything new. And not only the interior that is somewhat customized to this family unit that was living there, but, but the extra as well, landscaping. I mean, it is fabulous. And so in a week's time, they bring the family who's coming back on vacation, and they bring them back, and they show them this new house. And it, they are just, like, blown away. Some of them are falling on the ground. They're picking them up. No, this, they can't believe that they're going to – this is their home. And they, then they take a tour of it, and their you know, camera's there, and they're watching them and all the reactions as they go through this, this new home. And it's – it's really amazing. They're crying. You know, in my family, they're crying watching this. It's, it's really, it's, it's staggering. Now, Extreme Home Makeover ends with this statement. Ty Pennington, he's the team captain. He says, well, there's just one thing left to say, and his hair is even more wild than mine. I mean, it's just going all over. And he's like, welcome home. Welcome home. Okay, and so that's how the show ends there. And they load up and they take off to their next little adventure in some other state. Now, Extreme Home Makeover. It changes people's homes, but it doesn't change their heart. It changes their living situation, but it doesn't change the lifestyle of the people. It changes where they live, but it does not change the way they live. And this next upcoming month, we would like to, as a church, not change where you live, but to change how you live. Now, we are going to uh, take a month to take a look at experiencing an extreme financial makeover. And we would want this to be an experience where you're not just like, eh, you know, I picked up a few good tips on how to make my money stretch a little further or make a few better decisions. You know what we're after? We're after like we're after every Sunday. Life transformation. 
experienced in relationship with Christ that affects every area of your life, especially your finances. Now, now if you're thinking like, I came today because I heard there was going to be an extreme financial makeover, and I thought that maybe I would be the selected company to come and knock down the little house that I'm living in, you know, like the Big Bad Wolf or something like that, and you're going to put me into some real deluxe place, uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you. We're not, we're not going to do that. There's no one going to come in here and whisk you away. But I can tell you this. If you will listen very carefully to what the Lord has to say in his scriptures, if you will ask him for his divine enablement for this to be a reality in your life, you will be able to look back upon your life and see that God has done an amazing work. And this series, we're really looking forward to it. We're going to have the opportunity of hearing some special testimonies of how God has worked in various people's lives. But this is going to be, I think, if we truly will yield our lives to the Lord, could be transformational in the life of our church. Now, if I was to ask you, like, what do you think are some of the major themes in the Bible? I, I would imagine someone would go, prayer, and you'd be right. Do you know that there are about 400 verses in the Bible that talk about prayer? But did you know that in terms of stewardship or finances, that there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that deal directly with the subject of stewardship and your possessions? In fact, that's twice as many as there are in, in regards to faith and prayer. And just to accentuate just how important you, what you do with the finances and the, that you have when Jesus was on the earth and he had a three-year ministry, Jesus spoke a lot of, gave a lot of parables. There were a lot of stories laying aside spiritual, uh, something they were very familiar with to communicate a spiritual truth. Jesus gave 38 different parables. Did you know that 16 of those parables have to do with your money and what you do with your possessions? In fact, you could, if you look at it, it's actually one in every ten verses Jesus speaks has to do with us and the money that we have. That's, by the way, that's actually, uh, that's even far more than he ever spoke about heaven or hell. Why, why such an emphasis on our money and our possessions in the Bible? Why did Jesus talk about it like all the time? For this reason, how you and I handle our money reveals what we really believe in our heart. Now, let me just tell you, there is nothing wrong for you to have money or even a lot of money. It is only when that when money has you that you have a problem. You see, what we do with our money, what we think of it, it may very well be one of the clearest indicators of our spiritual condition. And today, I would like to just take a look at the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to look at this subject of money. And if we're going to have a biblical discussion and developing a biblical perspective toward money and possessions, we have to begin by asking this question. Are you ready? Who really is your master? We've got to have that figured out. Something I just want to say right here at the onset. Every single person in this room, in this auditorium, everyone's got a master. The question is, who or what? You want to see Jesus lay it all down on the line? 
Look at verse 13 of Luke chapter 16. This is, uh, this is kind of a statement that Jesus makes here that's going to thin the crowd and upset the party. Luke chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus says this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. First of all, you got to know this. It is impossible to serve two masters. Now, when I read this, you guys were, you were you're sat there, and you, you can have some understanding of what Jesus is saying. But if you were a part of the culture in which Jesus was moving about 2,000 years ago, and you spoke of servants, of slaves, why, this was something that was very crystal clear in your mind. There's something that you must remember about slaves in in the ancient world. First of all, a slave had absolutely no rights of his own. A slave didn't do what he wanted. Uh, he had absolutely no rights of his own. And second of all, a slave literally had no time of his own. He, everything about him, his time, everything, his skills, his gifts, everything he had all belonged to his master. It was a 100% devotion to whatever the master wanted. There was no such thing as part-time servant, okay? This is nothing to do with, like, you and your job. Now, I don't know what you think of your employer, but to have a master and a slave, you get to go home at some point. Even if you have to put in a 12-hour day, the servant always had to do whatever the master wanted whenever he wanted it. It is impossible to serve two masters. That's what Jesus says. And let me also point out to this. It is inevitable that you will serve only one master. It is inevitable. You, in fact, Jesus says, you cannot serve God and wealth. Now, that word wealth, that's uh, translated the Greek word mammonas, okay? Uh, Maybe your Bible actually has the word mammon. And you've heard of that English word mammon, although it's somewhat fallen out of use there. And and usually when you hear the word mammon, uh, it cogitates like, that's, that's, uh, that's something bad. Now, this is fascinating, this word, this word mammon. I'd like to give you just a little bit of history on it. Originally, it wasn't a bad word at all. In fact, mammon, it means, from its root, it means to entrust. And this is how it worked. If you had some funds, some resources, you, would, you could entrust it to another individual to keep it safe for you. Or you could entrust it to some safe deposit box that, that would protect it and it would be safe. That was what mammon was. It was something or resources that you entrusted to another, okay? But over time, this is what happened, and this is fascinating. Over time, it moved from something that you entrusted to another to something that you put your trust into. You put your trust into wealth, into your mammon. It wasn't something you gave and said, please keep this for me. I entrust this to you. Actually, it became something you put your trust into, and over time, it became almost like a god in a person's life. It is, it is fascinating to look at the history of the word because it really it tells you and I what material possessions actually can do in our life. Something that we've been entrusted with now becomes something that we trust into. And when Jesus personified money, he is doing this to portray its danger, and this is the danger of money. Money is amoral, okay? It's neither good nor bad. But money 
can become an alternative Messiah. And that is why Jesus is saying, guess what, friends? You cannot serve God and wealth. No one can serve two masters because the time will come when they're going to make opposing demands. Jesus said you will be devoted to one. When you're devoted to something, it means that you hold firmly to, you cleave to. It, it suggests the idea that you're constantly attending, you're thinking about it. it. It just kind of wraps up your emotions, your affections, your desires, your dreams. You're devoted to it, and you will, on the other hand, whatever you're devoted to, the contrast you will despise. You'll think very little of the other. And Jesus says, guess what? Someone or something is master of your life. And you will be devoted to whatever or whoever is your master. It's not wrong for you to possess wealth. It is wrong for wealth to possess you. You cannot serve two masters, just like you can't walk in two different opposite directions at the same time. It doesn't work. It's called breakdancing, okay? You can't do it, all right? You just can't do that, all right? Is that pretty good? All right. You just can't do that. You can't go in two different directions, and you can't have... Two masters. One will claim your attention, your affection, your focus, your desires. One will be your security, your refuge, your savior and life. Who really is your master? You cannot serve God and wealth. You can only be devoted to one. Now, let me just say this. If money is your master, then you become its slave. When a person is a lover of money, one or more of the following danger signs are going to often appear. All right? Now, I want to also tell you this. You do not need to have a lot of money to be a lover of money. A lot of people who are lovers of money actually have very little of it. And they're always hoping that they could get more money because they actually think that money will be their savior. It will spare them. It will be their refuge. It's their hope. It'll give them a sense of security. And even though they don't have very much, they really would like to because after all, if money is your master, you really think that it will be able to provide for you. Not just buy you a meal at Burger King, but it'll be kind of your source of refuge and sense of security in your life. So what are some red flags that may reveal that, that wealth is your master? And I'd just like to walk through these. Let's, for instance, how did, how did the original recipients take Jesus' statement when Jesus says, guess what, you cannot serve God and wealth? Well, let me draw your attention to the very next verse. We can find out. We find that Jesus is making these statements, and there are some Pharisees. Pharisees, as we've talked about before, they were the ultra-right religious sect of Judaism. These are very religious people, okay? They're in the synagogue all the time. In fact, they were trying to keep every single law that God had ever given, and to make sure that they did, they actually had their whole book of separate laws to keep the laws that God gave. These guys were very religious. They're the Pharisees. How did they receive Jesus' statement? Verse 14. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. If wealth is your master, let me give you one of the red flags that will come up. You'll be rejecting Christ. If wealth is your master, you'll be rejecting Christ. Why? You can't have two masters. You can only have one. And these guys, they're scoffing at Jesus. They 
They hated Jesus, and they did not like what he had to say. And so they're scoffing at him. The, the idea they, they ridiculed him, made fun of him and what he was saying. When, you're, when you are a, a lover of money, when, when wealth is your master, one of the red flags is that whoosh, you'll reject Christ. Let me give you another one. You will also justify yourself. Look at what Jesus has to say. Verse 15, now he said to them, to this crowd that is scoffing at him, he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. They were trying to vindicate themselves that this was right. In fact, they thought that the reason that they were wealthy is because why, this was just God's divine blessing because they were following all the rules and laws. It makes sense. You do what God had said and God is just going to bless you. And that's kind of the mentality. And they were devoted to their wealth in such, in such a manner that just like the non-believing, they had such a strong devotion. They loved their money and all the things that money could provide for them. They high, what Jesus says, what is highly esteemed by, among men is detestable in the sight of God. You know what is highly esteemed among men? It is that you've got enough financial wherewithal and resources that you can live and do anything you want. You can live independent of God. You've got enough resources to be secure for any rainy day that might come down the pike. And you justify yourself that this is right. Don't tell me that I've got a problem. I show up at a church. I throw in like $5 in an offering. Don't tell me that, that money is my master. It's all part of a rationalization process. It has a long history. Remember what Jesus said? You can't have two masters. If you find yourself justifying how you're living in terms of your resources, it might be a red flag that wealth has become your master. And remember, you cannot serve God and wealth. You can only be devoted to one. Now, let me give you another example of where you see money linked to a person's spiritual condition. This is, this is a theme that Luke is weaving through his gospel. He wants you to see it. You and I cannot afford to miss it. Want to see another example? Turn to Luke 18. Let's turn over a page. Luke chapter 18, verse 18. You find this is a good guy. This might be the citizen of the year. We would, we would really probably like this guy. He is the rich, young ruler. He's got a lot of things going for him. Let me give you a third red flag that comes up when wealth is your master. There is an inability to follow Jesus. This was a very significant interaction between Jesus and this rich, young ruler. It's found in all three of the synoptic gospels. This is here for a reason. Look at verse 18. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Is that what you really believe about me? That I am the, the good teacher? I am the God teacher? And then Jesus does something rather startling. You see, he's asking, what do I do to inherit eternal life? You'd almost think that Jesus is going to break into some sort of great little theological treatise here. 
to help him understand. And, and Jesus does something that would surprise us. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, he says, Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, well, all these things I have kept from my youth. Whoa, what is Jesus doing here? What? Let me tell you what Jesus is doing. You see, you probably recognize those Ten Commandments. Some of you have a little plaque maybe in your bedroom there. Oh, yeah, I recognize those, the Ten Commandments. And he's, and he's naming some of them. He actually doesn't mention the one that's glaring, the coveting one. He throws us some others. And what Jesus is doing by presenting the law to him, it's like he's putting a mirror in front of this guy's face. And, he, and the man is to look at himself and to see how does he compare with God's divine law. What it is meant to do is just to completely break the man and to show his complete inadequacy. He says, do not commit adultery. Okay, and Jesus already has actually unpacked what adultery means. It's not the physical act. You mean to say you've never lusted after anyone? Uh, to not murder? So yeah, you didn't run a spear through someone. But have you ever assassinated someone's character or called them a fool? Did you ever steal? You've not ever borne false witness. Where are your parents? Did you really honor mother and father? You, every, all the time? Never once slipped up there? Uh, you see, when I hold that mirror up to you or to me, I'm like, oh, I am a total failure. There's all sorts of times where I have broken down on even, even what God is, the Lord is presenting right here. But I want you to see how the, the rich young ruler responds. Verse 21, he said, all these things, you know what? I've kept from my youth. Yeah, I, I've done everything that you've had to say. This is, instead of, instead of seeing like, well, uh, I've tried, but I failed. No, he says, you know what? I've done it all. And let me tell you what's happening. You see, when your God is your wealth, when money is your master, it blinds you to your real condition. You actually think that you're fine, that you are okay. In fact, you are, it's as if you're almost unable to see your sinfulness. That is why Jesus is going to have to address this malady in his life that is creating all sorts of corruption. So verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it. To the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Whoa. I'm sure this wasn't what the guy was thinking. I'm sure he was expecting that Jesus would just tell him to do something that was reasonable, right? Just believe this, right? Just raise your hand, I'll pick you. No. Jesus said, uh, You know what? Why don't you. Uh, just sell everything you've got and give it to the poor and come, follow me. What was the man's question? Sir, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him the answer. Follow me. Follow me. Come after me. There is something that is holding you up. There is like, a, it's, it's more than an anchor. It has got you weighed down. In fact, you are drowning in it because you can't have two masters. You can't have wealth and me. Let it go. Let it go 
and come follow me. When he says follow me, by the way, that's a present imperative in the Greek. That means a lifestyle way of living. And this is very important for American Christians to get this because we get the idea that we follow Jesus for a season of time when it is convenient. Now, I followed Jesus when I was in junior high until I got high school. And then I went, wow, you know what I mean? And then college and, and I dropped off. And I find myself 50 years later and I really don't ever give a thought about God or about following Christ. That's foreign to the New Testament. When Jesus says, follow me, it is a lifestyle. It is forever, not just a season. You want an eternal life? You want to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, come, follow me. Come after me, and I will give you, you'll have treasure. You will have treasure in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that is amazing. Come and follow after me. The wealth of heaven. All the riches that we find in Jesus Christ, the eternity of being in his presence, of no tears, of great joy, of unending worship, because we are astounded by the marvelous eternal grace of God. Is that what you, just just follow me. But you're going to have to let go of your previous master. You've got to get rid of your wealth. Now, I do not think that Jesus is making a case for universal asceticism, where you just, you get rid of everything. What Jesus is doing is he's addressing this issue in his life. Now, he may call you to give it all up because, if, frankly, if money has got a stranglehold on your neck, you need to get it off of you because you cannot have two masters. And so he says, just come and follow me. What a great and golden opportunity. Isn't this awesome? Jesus, the master physician, just identifies exactly what needs to be done. He tells him, and how does the man respond? Well, I want you to look at verse 23. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked to him, at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It is so hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because you can only have one master and wealth is so promising and it is so prominent and it is always reinforced in our society. And to let it go and to find your hope and your confidence in God and not in your money is extremely difficult. In fact, it is almost impossible. Well, the disciples obviously understood what he was saying. Verse 26, they heard it and said, well, well, then who can be saved? I mean, it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, then how in the world, how could anybody be saved from their sin and being saved from having wealth as your master? And I want you to see verse 27. You want to know something about salvation? Look what Jesus has to say. The things which are that are impossible with people are possible with God. You are incapable of your salvation. But with God, all things are possible. Tell you what, you might be sitting there going, huh, well, I'm not rich. So that story, that really doesn't apply to me. I want you to think about that for a minute. Okay, so you're thinking you're not wealthy. 
You know, this guy here, 2000 ago, rich young ruler. Did you know that um, he could not ride in a car like you did today? He couldn't have surgery. He couldn't turn on a light. He couldn't buy penicillin. He couldn't hear a CD. He couldn't watch TV. He couldn't wash dishes with running water, especially in his own home. He couldn't type a letter. He couldn't mow a lawn. He couldn't fly in an airplane. He couldn't sleep on an inner spring mattress like you did last night. And he couldn't talk on the phone. And if he was rich, what are you? What are you? In fact, you were probably richer than the young ruler. See, what's the problem here is that uh, this guy had a master in his life. And you want to know how powerful wealth is? It has the ability to keep you from following Jesus and walking away from the very thing you said you wanted most in your life. What has happened to this man is that he had a substitute Messiah and he simply could not let it go. See, riches have a tendency to breed self-sufficiency. They give you a false sense of security. You have the idea that you do not need divine resources. And when they said, well, who can be saved? Well, who could be saved? Only God can provide that. Friends, guess what? You can't have God and wealth both being your masters. It's got to be one. And we need to get it figured out today, right now. You know, it is not wrong for you to possess money or wealth. Even in our church, I would imagine that we have some people that we would probably consider wealthy. They have a lot of resources. God has given them the ability to make money. And they, they do. They make a lot of it. And it's not wrong to possess a lot of money. In fact, there are, there are people in the kingdom of heaven, there are people uh, in the scriptures that actually had a lot of wealth. Like, for instance, Abraham. He was a righteous guy. He believed God. Job, Boaz, David, Solomon. These were all wealthy individuals. It is not wrong to possess wealth. The only problem is, is when wealth possesses you. Let me just give you some other red flags. And I'm just going to basically list these. Red flags when, when wealth has become your master. Like you have a desire to flaunt your wealth. You derive an inordinate pleasure in just showing off your luxury purchases. Let me give you another one. One never seems to have enough. The mantra here is more, more, more. I just got to get more. And the sense of contentment is almost absent because you're just like, I just, I just need more. Oh, that guy, look at that. They have more than I do. I need more. Their house is big. And it's just go. It, when you see that happening in your life, it could be an indicator that, that wealth is your master. Let me give you another one. A person hates to give no matter how pressing the need. The whole idea of worshiping God with your wealth, well, that is not something that people who have wealth as their master are inclined to do. It's like, what? Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. And so this is what happened. When people have wealth as their master, they frequently, they try to spend it all on themselves. And when they find themselves in situations like, a charity-type situation, like, oh, everybody's watching me and looking at me and see what I'm going to do, they will give some amount. Now, it's not going to hurt them at all, and it's oftentimes done in a public way, and again, the attention all goes back to them. And a person that has wealth as their master, they find it very difficult to give, no matter how pressing the need. Starving children, the poor and the marginalized, 
you just want to close your eyes and not think about that. Because that's going to infringe upon what your master, your master of wealth, might want you to do. I'll give you another indicator that wealth may be your master. A person may be willing to sin to acquire more to keep as much as they can. They can do anything from lying on their income taxes to padding their expense account uh, to steal from their workplace. They may even do things that will somehow create a situation where they'll be able to get a little bit more. Okay? They might, for instance, um, call different work practices gray areas. Well, it's not really wrong or right. And, and you can. I've actually seen this happen. Where like a guy called forgery, just a gray area. Well, I don't think so. People go to prison for that. Or embezzling money from your office. But when, when wealth is your master, isn't that funny how controlling the effect it can have on your life? Let me give you a couple others. Red flag that master, your master may be money. One sense of security in life is your wealth. Your wealth, how much money you've got is your measuring rod. It is your one desire. It's your one weapon that you face life with. And you kind of have this sense. I'll listen to all this talk about God, but you know what? I've got enough money for a rainy day, and I can make it through. If you find that your great hope, your rock of refuge, is the resources that you have, friend, you might be in big trouble. Now, if this describes you, uh, then you obviously need to take very close attention to what Jesus is saying. Because if you are trusting in your gold more than God... You're in trouble. It is not wrong for you to have savings or investments or insurance, but it is wrong for you to trust in them more than God. Let me give you just one final more red flag. One final red flag that may indicate that wealth is your master. One thinks very little of eternity or the consequences of his devotion to wealth. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. You know why? You can't take it with you. Suppose we uh, went to a museum one day, and we're going through the turntiles, and, and there's a guy, and he kind of walks in, and then he's like, so he grabs this painting with a little Picasso, you know, and kind of puts it under his arm, and he's starting to pick up artifacts here, and, and we're like, whoa, what's going on? He's like, Put his hand through some glass there, pick that up. Whoa, I'll take that there. And he's got all this stuff here, and we'd go, hey, wait, wait a second. What are, you, what are you doing? You can't take those things. They don't belong to you. And, oh, of course they do. I picked them up. They're mine. Like, wait a second. No, no, no. You, you, they're not yours. What are you, you've got to put those back. You can't leave here with those. You, they don't belong to you. Like, come on, would you just leave me alone? I've got all my stuff here. In fact, people think that I'm pretty important. Look how they're looking at me like I'm some sort of great collector. And will you stop being a killjoy of talking about leaving? I'm having a great time, and it's all mine, and the more I can get, the merrier. You know what we would say about that guy, don't you? We'd say he is out of touch with reality, right? Huh. Got it? Okay. So what about all of the people in life that are just like, seeing how much they can grab, and they think their whole identity is in the possessions that they have. Let me tell you something. You walked in here, you were brought into this world with nothing. You will leave with nothing but your master. Is your master God? Because if it is not, 
you're going to be in for a rude awakening. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, we have brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either. What are the results of having wealth as your master? Let me just tell you, it is devastating. Let me just read the scripture. Listen to God. Will you listen to God? Proverbs eleven twenty eight. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. First Timothy six, nine and ten. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Loving money will either make you act like an unbeliever, or listen to this, it may reveal that you actually are. An unbeliever. You cannot have two masters. Wealth or God. When money is our master, we become its slaves. We will do whatever it says because we want more and more of it. But let me tell you the contrast of that. Also highlighted in the Gospel of Luke. When God is our master, we become his stewards. When God is our master, there is something different that takes place in our life. We're no longer a slave to wealth, but we naturally now are a steward of of God and of his resources. And you want to see a picture of that? Look at Luke 19. Now, we sing about this guy, and he's, he's got a song after him about this wee little guy here. And I hope you don't get stuck about the guy in a statue and him hanging out in a tree, because if you do, you've missed the point. All right? So don't be thinking about the flannel graph presentation you saw a few years ago. I want you to be listening carefully to this, what took place in this man's life. Jesus enters Jericho, he's passing through, and there he was, that wee little man, okay, and he's called by the name Zacchaeus, all right, and a lot of you are like, oh yeah, I know that, can we sing that song afterwards, okay, Assad, and he was a chief tax collector, this guy was the boss, he was the big boy, he was the chief tax collector, and he was rich, okay, you know anything about tax collectors and Judaism, uh, these guys were Jews, they had sold out to the Roman Empire, and they could, assert, they could put all sorts of assessments, and they accumulated a massive amount of wealth, not only being paid by the Romans, but anything they could glean off of their fellow countrymen. As you can imagine, they were absolutely unpopular. They were rich, they just didn't have a lot of friends. Verse 3, and Zacchaeus, though, something's going on in this guy's heart. There's got to be a little bit more than money, huh? Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, whoa, isn't that, if you want to just see just the deity of Christ, look at that. He's walking all of a sudden, short guy in a tree, he names him Zacchaeus, Can you imagine what Zacchaeus probably fell out of the tree? Hurry and come down. No problem. He's already on the ground. For today, I must stay at your house. (laughs) Whoa, you know me. Okay. And verse 6, and he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, Oh, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Oh, this did not make the Jewish people happy. And look at verse 8. Obviously, something significant happened in this man's life. I want you to see it. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, 
Lord. Behold, that word means master. Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And look what Jesus says. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You know what is so fascinating here? Is that this man giving his money to the poor didn't earn him salvation. Don't get that idea. You see, what happens is when you and I place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord, it transforms how we view and what we do with our money. Case in point, Zacchaeus. Salvation immediately affected this man's financial area of life. Immediately. Jesus didn't say, don't you see, Zacchaeus is being nicer now that he's believing in me. See, he's not as rough as he once was. That's not the issue. Jesus says, look, salvation has come to this household. How do you see it? What's the evidence? Look what he's doing with his money. Friends, this is a critical issue. See, what we do with our money is a revealing indicator of who is master of our hearts. Your stuff, your stuff, it can't satisfy. Only the Savior can. Money can't wash away your sins, but I know one who can. It is the Messiah. So let me just ask you this question. Is wealth or your pursuit of wealth consuming your life, taking over your heart, enslaving your thoughts and your attention and your affection. Who really is your master? If you find that, well, actually I spend most of my time thinking about it, I certainly far more about my money than I do about God, then friends, you're in dire need of casting yourself upon the mercy and the grace of God. You cannot serve two masters. You know, money, possessions, wealth, uh, To have it is not a sin. You know what it is? It's a grave responsibility. If a person has much materially and financially, it's not a matter of congratulations so much as it is a matter of prayer. Because you know what? You can't have two masters. And wealth is a very powerful master and has many in its possession. The issue is not just how well you can serve two masters. The issue is that you cannot serve them both. See, there's a throne in our life, and it's only big enough for one. On that throne, Christ may be, or there may be wealth, but there is only room for one. But when God is our master, you know what? We then see ourselves as stewards. We recognize that all that we have, it's it's from God. We're stewards. It's, It's been entrusted to us for a period of time. And next week, We are going to talk about what does it look like to be a steward. We're going to pick up at the very next verse, verse 11. But if you come here today and you're like, whoa, Grant, wealth is my master, and I am its slave. I want you to draw draw your attention to verse 10 of Luke 19. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those which are lost. If you're a lost one, you want forgiveness, you want freedom, you want life, you want treasure in heaven... Place your faith in Jesus Christ. You've got to turn from the old master of wealth and embrace Jesus Christ, the Savior, and you will have life. Jesus says, come 
follow me. Let me give you a critical warning of the Old Testament. I hope that this is actually shaking you to the core. I hope that the reason why it is so completely quiet in this room is not because you're like, I'm sleeping and I'm hoping the message will be over. I hope it's because you are thinking very deeply of this issue. Because this is life or death. Listen to this critical warning from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 14. Beware, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding you today, lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart becomes proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Friends, wealth has a way of making us forget our God and our salvation. I'll tell you, one of the joys of being a part of fellowship is there are so many people in our church that it's very evident that, that God is their master. But the reason that we're going to take such a critical look at this is that, friends, we need to grow together. And it will take all of us, not just some of us. You see, the health of our church is made up of the health of the individuals. And one of the greatest indicators of spiritual health is what you and I are doing with our resources. And so let me just give you a few points of application. First of all, let us consciously make God rather than wealth the focus of our desires. Trusting in Christ. Let us ask this question. Master, how do you want me to live and give. When is the last time you said, God, what do you want me to do with my life, with my possessions? And let us look to God as our source of confidence and sense of security, not the fleeting vapor of money as our master. Let us pray. Lord, we just want to praise you and thank you that you have been so very clear in the scriptures. This is obviously an issue of great and grave concern. For wealth is a master that has the multitudes in tow and enslaved. And if there is someone here, Lord, who can positively identify that, yeah, it's not God. It's basically me, my money, and what I'm pursuing with my money and to get more of it. Right now, Lord, would they turn from the God of wealth and turn to the God of salvation, you, and pray with me. Lord, I confess that I've gone my own way. I've tried to find my identity and my security, my sense of well-being and my money and my wealth. But today, because of the working of your Holy Spirit and the clarity of your word, I turn from my sin, I turn from trusting wealth, and I put my faith in you, in Jesus Christ, the Savior of all of my sin, the God of my redemption, the one who has paid the full penalty, the fullness of your wrath, He's paid it all. And right now, I trust in him and seek to follow him forever. And Lord, I pray that you would do a significant work in our church. Would you give us a heart to go your way? Would you form us and fashion us that we might look back upon these days and say they were significant and transformational in how we live for your glory? This we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.